Hey everyone, welcome to another exciting episode with Arti and Sriram. And today we have somebody who generally needs no introduction. Uh, I'm pretty sure he has sold more copies of any book in the last like few years than maybe the Bible. You could not have missed his work at all if you've been towards any e-commerce booking uh, store. But uh, he's been a friend for a long time, an inspiration, and we're really excited to have him on the show. The one and only James Clear. James, thank you so much for being here. Hey, pleasure to talk to you both. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to start you off with a few softball questions to kind of get you warmed up. So uh, teach us how to write and market the number one best-selling nonfiction book for several years in a row. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> I don't even know that I know. I, uh, I've i been very fortunate. It's been a wild ride. I do have some lessons, I think, that uh, that will probably apply to launching pretty much any product. Um the way I think about it right now is like 50% of the success of a product is the positioning of it. So the example that I give is there's a chapter later in Atomic Habits where I talk about deliberate practice. It could have been a book about deliberate practice where I talk about habits, but instead it was a book about habits where I mentioned deliberate, deliberate practice. And I think the difference in how those two books would sell is enormous because mm-hmm. Just by virtue of being part of society and growing up in culture, you know that like good habits are favorable and bad habits are unfavorable. And I don't have to convince anybody to have that desire. I'm just tapping into a desire that's already there. Whereas deliberate practice, yeah, I don't know, you kind of need 30 seconds to unpack it and explain it. And you don't get that with people. You know, when people are looking at your book or any product, really, I'm not standing next to them. You know, they've never heard of me. They don't have any context. So they need to be able to look at the cover of the book what I call the frame of the book. So the the title, the subtitle, the like reading line, or basically anything you see on the cover and get in five seconds why they would buy it. Now, not everybody in the world is going to buy Atomic Habits, but I think most people could look at it and at least be like, oh, okay, I understand why that's useful. I understand why people would want to buy it. So the positioning of the product, I think is really crucial. And then the only way that a product can sell tens of millions of copies is word of mouth. There's a, you know, it has outpaced my ability to market it. I, I have a large audience. I'm very fortunate. I spent a long time, a lot of years, you know, I've been writing for over a decade now, trying to build a huge email list and have a good platform to launch the product. And I did everything I could. And I sort of view product launches as kind of, it's almost similar to launching a space shuttle where it's like, or a satellite. You got to put a lot of effort in to get it off the launching pad and to get it up into orbit. But then if you can go high enough, it kind of stays in orbit on its own. And that's the power of word of mouth. Mm-hmm. If you don't get it off the pad enough, then it just crashes back down to earth. Um, so the product launch is about getting into orbit. Uh, but once it's up there, it's really just word of mouth that's doing it. And the only way to get word of mouth is to, I like Seth Godin's definition, where he says you want to create something remarkable. And that means that it's worthy of remark. You know, So it, it has to be so good that people want to talk about it. They have to love it so much that uh, they feel like, oh man, I need to tell somebody about this. And the only way you can do that is by creating something great, creating something that people value or that people find genuinely useful in their life. So I'd say, you know, positioning is crucial. And then you have to have this philosophy where you're always trying to outpace uh, the value that you're asking for. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine like the value that a product creates and then the cost that it, it is to acquire that product. So not just money, but also like in my case, the amount of time that it takes for someone to read the book. Mm-hmm. So 
you've got the value they get from the book subtracted by the the time and the money that they had to put in to get it. Mm -hmm. And whatever that difference is, is like goodwill. And I'm always trying to have this huge surplus of goodwill where people feel like it's such a good value. It's such a good trade to read the next thing he writes or to open the next newsletter or to buy that book that it's like, yes, of course I would do it. And so I think if you have that philosophy of always like giving excess value and having the surplus of goodwill, and if you position your products well, um, and you do a good launch and try to get it up in orbit, if you can do all those things, then uh, maybe word of mouth will take over and it'll kind of run on its own. You touched on many things. In some ways, I think what you do is kind of what Aditya and I aspire to do in many ways, because uh, you know you added so much value for close to a decade, maybe longer with your newsletter, and you have like a really large audience there. How did the idea of a book come about? Like, you know, you had this amazing newsletter, um, and I remember talking to, I think, uh, Brian Holiday, who's a mutual friend of ours, of, uh, uh, you know, the modern day Marcus Aurelius, about what uh, your kind of journey from having an inbuilt audience of writing a book. So what caused that? Why a book? Um, it's a good question. I didn't really start out with some like big grand vision. I What I knew was that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I tried a couple different things early on, very standard entrepreneurship story, but I kind of floundered around for two or three years. It was really like two years uh, before I found my footing and started writing at jamesclear.com. And one of the best pieces of advice that I got early on was to try things until something comes easily. So that doesn't mean that it's going to be totally easy. It just means that the results are coming faster than maybe they did in other areas. So for example, by the time I was two years in and launched jamesclear.com, I had probably started like three to five different websites and kind of given each one a run for a couple months and tried to see, can I build an email list? Can I get people to, you know, um, buy a product and uh, sign up for something? And I was just sort of doing some web design stuff in the background, like taking freelance clients to make ends meet. And then eventually when I started writing about habits and productivity and strategy and decision-making, like all the stuff that I kind of write about now, that for some reason, those topics just resonated with people better and the growth was much easier. It was obvious pretty early on that like, oh, this is going well compared to the old stuff. So I think you need to look for those signals of progress early. Mm -hmm. Then as the site started to grow after, I think I was at, I started zero. Uh, a year later, I think I had like 30 or 33,000 subscribers, something like that. After two years, I was at 100. And then after three years, I was around 220. And that was around the time when I uh, started getting interest from agents and publishers. Like they were reaching out to me a little bit and be like, hey, have you thought about writing a book? And um, I had some friends who had done it at that point and they were interested. And it kind of seemed like a natural next step. I never set out and said like, oh, I really want to be an author. But as I explored the option more, it was like, yeah, I think this is something I would like to do. And then once I accepted the offer and decided to like do it for real, I got really serious about it. And it kind of became like the all consuming thing that I did for the next like two or three years. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't something that I just like, I wasn't planning to do it. But once I decided to, I took it seriously. It's kind of uh, interesting that when you talk about, and we haven't, I haven't written a book. Shreeram actually has, he's written a technical book, but uh, it's uh, funny because uh, the way you describe leading to book writing and the process of it, is very similar to how you know founders think about starting startups. Like you started out being like, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. But to me, it's 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 kind of interesting to see the comparisons because you know you're experimenting in the early days, you're trying out multiple websites, you're trying to see like what's sticking. Yeah. 
trying to measure growth, trying to figure out what the natural product market fit is and eventually leading into the book and then investing in that as the project. It's it's just, I would have never thought of it as a way to compare these two. I don't, I don't know if most authors think about it that way or if that's how people feel, but I would say that that's true, The how my path played out and that that is like the way that I kind of think about it. There are a couple elements I feel like are important details there. Uh, the first is, I want to choose projects and to create a business that I'm genuinely excited about or genuinely interested in. And I almost feel like that is the first like enormous hurdle to clear, no matter what kind of business you're building is you have to genuinely be into it because if you're not, if you, if you are interested and engaged, the opportunities for improvements are like almost endless. You'll always be finding different things to capitalize on or look for to tweak or improve. If you're not genuinely interested in it, then even the obvious improvements are going to feel like a hassle. It's just going to feel like this, you know, um, it's everything's going to feel like a little bit of a burden. So um, in order to do that, I I am not smart enough to figure out what those things are right away. Like I need to test and iterate and try different things. And so, as you mentioned, try a variety of websites or write about a variety of topics. One kind of interesting little detail about building a business in that way is you need your brand to be somewhat flexible early on. And that's a tricky thing because like really good branding is an important piece of the process. And I do think it, it often sets at least some kind of guardrail for what the business is going to be. It doesn't mean it can be anything, but I, I debated naming my website something. Uh, I had like, I still think I still have it somewhere, a spreadsheet, like 400 names for, you know, the topic or something. And eventually... James Clear is a fantastic name. It sounds like a action hero from a thriller. So (laughs) you can't do that, right? Like, yeah, maybe I got lucky with that. I feel like I feel like I I was just like, you know what? If Oprah's name is good enough for her and Seth Godin's name is good enough for him, then I'll just stick with James Clear for now. And I can write about whatever James Clear is interested in. And then maybe later, if I figure out what that is, I can double down and create an actual brand around it or something. Right. Now, again, I didn't know that at the time, but what ended up happening was James Clear, the brand became the overarching thing. And then Atomic Habits, the product got the name rather than the business getting the name. Um, And that's just because I ended up being an author. I, you know, again, I didn't know that's what I wanted to do, but uh, you do need some, you need a willingness to experiment, a thirst to find what you're genuinely interested in and enough flexibility along the way for the brand to take that shape as you kind of discover it. It's like the strategy emerges as you take action rather than having a grand plan and figuring it all out ahead of time. So uh, this is something I was really looking forward to asking you. And, you know, you should just get into as much detail as possible. So you mentioned to this as the space shuttle launch. So you've written a book. It's a fantastic product. We've all read it. It's an amazing book. But one of the things I loved talking to you about uh, earlier was the process of actually getting the launch done and marketing it. So could you just walk us through what you did, what worked, what didn't work. Uh, Because I think a lot of people listening to this are like, okay, I have something in the works. How do I get my book, my podcast, my creation out the door? What did you do? It's a crucial question. I think it's really important to take it seriously and to get it right. Um, So first of all, this is a two-person operation. So I I was solo for the first like, I don't know, five years of my career, I think. Um, And then when I signed the book deal, I got an advance and I used some of the money from the advance to hire my first employee, um, Lindsay. She still works with me and she's a crucial part of this process. So it was a two-person launch. Um, 
we, I was writing the book and then we started planning the launch while I was always collecting ideas. I was looking at what other people were doing and how launches were going and all that kind of stuff. I was just trying to, you know, back into what do you do to, to build a successful launch? So I was just sort of paying attention to what was going on and taking notes and stuff. But I took all those notes and we had a big meeting for a couple of days. And this was about 15 months before Atomic Habits came out. So I think that's the first thing is this was a, a 15 month planning process to launch the book. You know, a lot of the time I'll hear from authors and they'll be like, hey, my book comes out in six weeks. You know, what should I do? And there's still plenty to do, but you're like 15 months behind where, you know, where we were. So it's not totally realistic to think about being able to do the same thing in that short amount of time. Um, there was very little that we did that other people don't already know about or do. Like, it wasn't like I came up with some brand new strategy, but what having a long timeline allowed us to do were some things that required a lot of elbow grease and just sort of like were very manual and unsexy. And so most people don't do them because they just require a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So for example, podcasts were a big part of the launch strategy. So I, by the time the book came out, um, I had already recorded 75 podcast interviews um, and had wow. asked all of them to release within the first like two weeks of the book coming out. Mm -hmm. And then I had another 25 that I recorded that month when the book launched. So we got, we had a hundred podcast interviews come out within the first month of the book being out. Why is um, it important for folks who don't know, why is it important to compress everything around the launch time frame? I, this is just my theory. I don't know if other people feel the same way, but I think it's really crucial to have what I call like a concentrated strike. Mm -hmm. um, and you want all of the energy to be jammed into this really short window. Right. Part of the reason is that it makes it feel bigger than it actually is. So if you have a hundred interviews and they're spaced out over two years and one drops every couple of weeks, I don't know. It's just kind of like a, it's always there in the background, something you hear about, but it never really bubbles up to like the front of your consciousness. Mm -hmm. If a hundred interviews all come out within the same two week span, then you're like, my God, this guy's everywhere. I actually had somebody tell me that. Like I was hearing from people on Twitter, like, geez, I can't get away from this guy. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like, yeah, that's the point, you know, is like to try to be everywhere during that, um, during that window of time. Right. So in order to get that many, again, you know, I didn't have a book out. Like I, you know, I was relatively unknown. So why would a hundred people have me on their podcast? Well, we went through all of iTunes and all the top charts and all that stuff developed a spreadsheet of like 300 to 400 podcasts that we thought interview that already interview people. So we were only pitching interview shows that would already be a good fit for the topic. And then we wrote up, I, I wrote up individual emails to all, you know, 300 and however many of those people. And that takes a long time to write all those. And so uh, we needed months to do that. And then once we had all the drafts written, then we stacked them all and sent them all like, you know, six months before the book was going to come out. And then we recorded them all three months before. And then we asked them all to release, you know, that month. And not everybody released exactly when we wanted, but most people were willing to do that. Um, but, you know, you need to reach out to 300 to get on 100 and you got it. So just like it just takes a while. And most people are not either patient enough or uh, don't start soon enough to have enough time to do that. So that's just kind of one example that we sort of applied to most of the launch was let's just do the unsexy thing um, and take our time and make sure that it all comes out at the same time. Um, I also had my audience, of course, so we emailed them, you know, when the book came out and all that, tried to do a little bit of a pre-order push um, with my audience and then have all the external marketing stuff hit once the book was out. Um, 
the day the book came out, I was on CBS this morning. And so I did uh, like a four minute segment with them. A couple hours later, that segment got posted to YouTube. And then we emailed that segment out to my audience like a couple hours after that. And that was the launch day email. And I really think that made it feel like a thing. You know, it wasn't like, I, I don't know how many people bought because of the TV segment. It was probably, I've tried to estimate it so many different ways. I, it was probably almost certainly over a thousand, but probably less than 10,000 copies, yeah. somewhere yeah. in that range um, for the segment. So it was definitely valuable, but it's not like it sold a million copies on its own. But having the YouTube clip really lended an air of credibility to the whole launch where it wasn't just like a guy launching his book. It was like, no, this is a thing. Um, and so we use that on social media and use it to emailing my, my audience and so on. And then of course, once you have that credibility, then you can leverage that into other things, you know, so whether it's segments on other TV shows or bigger podcasts or whatever. Um, so emailing my audience, the TV segment and podcasts, I would say those are like the three biggest pillars of the launch. The other thing that we did was, um, reached out to a bunch of people who we thought so in was let's just call them influencers for lack of a better term um reached out to a bunch of influencers who we thought would enjoy the book mm. and asked if they wanted a copy and only if they opted in and sent us their address themselves did we put them on the list and send them one mm -hmm. same story though we sent all those uh copies out like right around the same time that all the podcasts were launching so everything's happening in the same moment mm -hmm. and um, I think the final thing I'll add to this, cause I, I think that probably gives you a pretty good picture is you want that concentrated strike because it makes it feel like a bigger thing because you're everywhere in that tight window of time. But I think you can do even better than that general principle, which is you can try to limit it to an echo chamber, so to speak. You can try to be big in an industry in a concentrated strike in a short window of time. And then I think it really feels bigger. So what we, what we did was tried to come up with audiences where we felt like it was a good fit for the book. And then, um, so I had a list of things and we picked a couple, I can't remember all of them, but I think like CrossFitters were one venture capitalists were one. And, um, I think like parenting and mommy blogs were another one. So we reached out to the influencers in those spaces, asked if they wanted a copy, whoever opted in and said, yes, we put them on the list and we sent the books out. Now, it turns out that the parenting and mommy blogs like didn't really do that much. The venture capitalists, I think they just get sent a lot of stuff. And so it didn't really, I don't know, it didn't take off in that uh, area, but the CrossFitters was a really good fit. And I think partially they get sent lots of supplements and workout gear, but they very rarely get sent books. And so that like was interesting enough that they were like, Oh, this is kind of cool. This is something different. And the book is just a really good fit for anybody in the fitness industry. Mm -hmm. And so, um, they got it. And like, if you're really into CrossFit and you follow a bunch of the top CrossFitters on Instagram and stuff, there were like five or 10 or a dozen of them that all posted about the book within the same like month span. And that makes it seem really big in your industry. It's like, not only are you seeing him on podcasts or hearing about it on TV or whatever, but like the thing you care about, all the big people in that space were talking about it at that time. And once we found a little success there, then we did a second round and reached out to bodybuilders and powerlifters and other people in, in the fitness space. Um, but I think that idea of like, let's do a concentrated strike, but let's do it within a targeted area and have all that action happen at the same time. Then it seems even, even bigger. Um, so yeah, it's all about trying to create the appearance that this thing is huge. And um, if you can do that enough, 
and it's all in the same kind of tight window, then I think you do hit exit velocity and you get into orbit and then the word of mouth starts to take over. This is such a masterclass. You know, this whole, this segment, I feel like we just struck gold because, you know, our audience are usually, you know, folks in tech, uh, young founders, people who are like trying to figure out what they want to go build. And, you know, there is a lot of talk about building things. And then there is this part about go to market or marketing it. And I think you just provided like this comprehensive masterclass on yep. how to go launch something in, in, in a really interesting, impactful way. So thank you. This was great. This is, and, you know, I remember talking to you about this over the years and I remember being like, wow, I would have never guessed the CrossFitters uh, book bestseller product market fit, but that's amazing. And by the way, uh, you brought up something I wanted to ask you about. So you actually really changed uh, you know, one aspect of my professional life in a deep way, I may not know it and not outside the book. Uh, we met a couple of years ago um, and, um, you know, and you mentioned you going on, uh, you know, this TV network and promoting it. And I actually Googled you. I'd actually seen all these clips and uh, we'll try and maybe edit one of these clips together in this episode. And you're fantastic. And I remember asking you, uh, because I had a bunch of TV coming up, uh, how to be good when you get interviewed on TV and you gave me some fantastic advice, which I've tried to follow. Trust me, I'm not as good looking and as polished as you are, you know, that morning. But for the audience here, you know, who might want to be, you know, on a morning show or have a, you know, a segment, uh, how do you get there? And once you're there, what do you do? Yeah. Um, well, so I can't remember exactly what I told you, but I'll go over some things, but if I forget something or there's something specific you want, let me know. Um, so the way it first happened for me was actually a little bit of luck. Uh, you know, I have been writing articles for years at this point, three or four years, maybe longer. Let's see. It was probably, 20, yeah, yeah, six years. So I've been writing on the blog for six years. Um, one of the articles I wrote was called The Physics of Productivity. And I just sort of, I don't know, took Newton's three laws and tried to like twist them or apply them to productivity and just I don't know, write some kind of semi, semi-clever blog post. And um, it did fine when it came out, but it was just kind of sitting there in the background. And then uh, one year, um, a journalist at the New York Times found it and they didn't like write a huge thing about it or anything. They just mentioned it in one of their articles and linked to the original. Well, it happened to be that a producer at CBS was reading that article as they were like researching a segment and they clicked on the link and came to the original blog post. And that was how they reached out to me. And they're like, hey, would you be interested in talking about this on a segment next week? And this was like 10 months before the book came out. So uh, I said, yeah, you know, sure. I'll, you know, I'll do it. So we did that short segment and I really tried to prep for that and nail that one because I thought if I can do a good job with this, maybe I can ask them to have me back when the book comes out. And so, uh, I remember hearing the story that Martin short was a great, um, you know, uh, late night TV guest. And they all, people always loved having him on their shows cause he would just crush it with his segments. And, the story is that he would script out the entire thing beforehand. He would write everything that he was going to say. Uh, and then he would get on stage and just play a relaxed version of himself. And so, um, you know, I'm not an actor, so I, I don't really, you know, I don't resonate totally with all that. But I took that idea to heart and um, I scripted the whole four minute segment that we could do. Now, I, I ended up scripting out like six minutes worth. And I like told them, here are the questions you can ask. Here's the response I'll give. You know, and I like did the whole thing. And I sent it over to the producer and I kind of got the impression that they like never get stuff like that, <laughs> but he, um, it was probably a little over the top, but I actually think he appreciated it. Cause I basically did his job for him. Uh, and so we did the pre-call and he just 
I, he never confirmed like, Hey, this is what we'll do. But then we went through the pre-call and everything that he like prepped me for, for the segment, I could tell he was just like walking through the document I had sent him. And so I was like, okay, all right. So this is like what it'll be like. So that took a lot of the, I was still very nervous to get on, you know, national TV for the first time, but it took a little of the edge off because I knew it was coming. Um, and only later did I find out. So Gail King did that interview and only later did I find out that anchors often just like go rogue and do whatever they want for the segment. So she didn't follow the script exactly, but uh, at least it created a frame for the interview. And I tried for each answer to have the, the problem with TV is it's not like a podcast. It's not like this where I am going to have, you know, a lot of time. You have a, an hour to unpack all the nuance and detail with TV. Everything gets compressed. And so a long segment is like four minutes. You're like lucky if you get that much time. Right. Um, sometimes it'll be like two and a half or something. And it's so tight that there's no way to have a conversation of any substance. You have to resort to sound bites. And so I was asking myself going in, if I can only say two or three sentences, like what is the sentence I'm going to say? And somebody's kind of in the background and they like pause for a second and look up at the TV or watch like the rest of the clip. Mm -hmm. And so you try to come up with those sound bites to like stop people in the middle of their morning and get them to watch just for a minute. And um, anyway, so prepping ahead of time, having those sound bites. And then no matter how the conversation goes, I just try to like go with it but I try to find a way to work that soundbite in to get to, I've got, I usually have like two or three, maybe four things. And I'm like, I want to try to get this example in or get this sentence in. So that approach has worked pretty well for me. And after doing that first segment, I, the first thing I did as soon as the, we ended and cut to the commercial was I went right over to Gail and I said, I got a book coming out in 10 months. Like this is a lot of fun. I would love to come back to do it. And she was like, we'll have you back. The only thing I ask is that we're your first, uh, that we're the first interview, like don't go to anybody else. So, um, you know, then I got her email and, uh, followed up like that day and got it on the calendar and made sure everybody, the publisher and everybody was like aligned and we locked it in. And that was, that was the way that I got on there, uh, for launch day. And I do think that that ended up being really valuable. Um, and I did the same thing when it was launch day in time for that segment, I came up with exactly the, you know, the lines I wanted to hit, uh, and the sound bites I wanted to say. And I, I think that, you know, that all went a long way to that clip really helping us. You know, I remember you mentioning the two people I want to mention. One is Martin Short, uh, because actually there's a great article. I think it's in the New Yorker, uh, New York mag where, which talks about Martin Short being everyone's favorite late night show guest, because the thing about Martin Short is he's usually a standard. He's the guy the late night shows usually get when somebody else cancels, some celebrity cancels, and they like get him in at the last minute to kind of substitute. Um, and producers love him because he basically, like you said, has like 10, 15 pages of material, which you just pitch them and then you have the story shows up. So that, he's amazing. The other interesting person, by the way, on late night shows who actually follows a very similar process is Tom Hanks. And uh, there's a recent episode uh, with Tom Hanks on Dak Shepard's mm. uh, podcast where you would think that Tom Hanks, being freaking Tom Hanks, would just show up on a late night show and he'd be like, good to go. But he's not, right? He calls the producer the previous day. He pitches him, hey, here are all my funny stories and quips and anecdotes. And he tries to read, is this funny? And, and then he has this compressed type five that he goes on mm -hmm. Fallon or Kimmel with. And I was like, this is Tom Hanks in 2022, who's be top of the game. And here he is, you know, mm -hmm. preparing with some, you know, junior line segment producer. And uh, 
very, very. Uh, it's uh, interesting, you know, the better someone is at their job, the simpler it often looks, the more effortless it seems. But it's almost always the case that there's a lot of iteration and refinement and effort going in ahead of time. Right. And, you know, all of these actors, they, they know the deal, like they know that they're producing a TV show, you know, they're creating entertainment. And it's supposed to appear as if it's just like this casual conversation, but it, like, it's a product in itself. And um, I don't think a lot of the time as an entrepreneur, or as an author, you don't really think about that. You think we need to market our product, but the marketing is also a product itself. And so approaching it with that lens and taking it seriously, um, I think it, you know, it just goes a long way to getting a better result. I want to, Kind of come to you a little bit, right? So because one of the you know Atomic Hobbits, which is you know has so many amazing things, I think one of the key takeaways I had uh, is you know focusing on systems and process rather than the outcome is obviously one common one. But the other part of it is also how do you identify, right? Like do you identify as a writer as opposed to being like, hey, I want to have a bestseller uh, someday. So I had a question for you. Right. Like you've had such an interesting career, right? Like, you know, all American athlete, uh, weightlifter, newsletter writer. And now, you know, every year I look at Amazon, you are number one. Question A, do you now identify as a writer? And number two, now that you have a bestseller out, I assume it's not going to be the only book you ever write. Do you feel now pressure to now live up, be like, hey, this book is the greatest selling album of all time? Now I have my sophomore album. Like, how is that going to be? Yeah, yeah. People are just destined to be disappointed. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, so on the identity piece, I definitely identify more as an entrepreneur than as an author. I still feel that way. Um, I can't deny that I'm an author now because the book exists. So I'm kind of like, hey, I got, like, I guess that is kind of part of who I am. But I didn't set out with like the quest to try to like have that be part of my identity. I think that speaks to the process that I talk about in Atomic Habits though, which is, your habits are how you embody a particular identity. So every day that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. You know, every day that you, um, if you study biology for 20 minutes on Tuesday night, you embody the identity of someone who's studious. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of your experiences in life matter, but your habits, by virtue of the fact that they get repeated again and again, they end up providing kind of the bulk of the evidence. And that's why I say in the book, like every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. And so these habits, they keep casting votes and like adding votes to the pile. Mm -hmm. And eventually you sort of shift the story in favor of that element or that aspect of your identity. It's kind of like a painting that's like endlessly being retouched, you know, just each day you're kind of shaping it a little bit. And uh, eventually you get to this point where you're like, oh, I guess I am, you know, that thing. And like in my case, it's like I kept writing day in and day out. And then a couple of years later, it's like, oh, I guess I am an author. Um, and so you're always providing some evidence there. Now, once you start to identify in that way, once you start to like see yourself in that way, I think it becomes easier to stick to the behavior to some degree, like the type of person who views themselves as I am a runner, they don't have to motivate themselves to go for a run in the same way that somebody who's like just getting started does, you know, it's kind of like, no, like, this is just part of who I am. It's like what I do each day. And I think specifically, once you take pride in that aspect of your identity, you really are motivated to stick to it. You know, if you take pride in the size of your biceps, you like never skip arm day at the gym. <laughs> or if you like, if you take pride in how your hair looks, you have this like long hair care routine, all these habits associated with it, and you do it every day. And the more that you take pride in that aspect of who you are, uh, the easier it becomes to stick to it. And almost once it's part of your identity, 
you're not even really pursuing behavior change anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you see yourself to be. Now, ultimately, and this is something I mentioned at the end of the book, there's a potential pitfall here, which is the tighter that you cling to your current identity, the harder it becomes to grow beyond it. And we all have examples of stuff like that. You know, you can imagine like a, a surgeon who has been doing it a certain way for 25 years and has great outcomes with their patients. And then a new technology comes along and there's a way to do the surgery robotically or just in a different style. And they're like, I'm not going to do that. Like, I, I know this way works really well. And then five years later, they find themselves behind the curve and, or like the teacher who has their lesson plans that they've been doing for a decade and doesn't want to integrate YouTube or new technology or whatever into the, you know, the curriculum. And so again, five years later, they're like behind the curve. So the tighter you cling to what you currently are, the harder it becomes to grow. But in the early days, the more you foster and build that identity, the easier it becomes to stick with the habit. So I think it's really useful early on, but then you still need this mindset of growth, evolve or die, um, and kind of adapting and being a lifelong learner. In my specific case, you know, now I have this identity as best-selling author. And so like, does that threaten me or does that scare me in some way? I'm trying to keep it pretty light, you know, like I think the way I'm currently looking at it is it's a, it can just be a project that went really well. You know, it doesn't have to be more than that. It doesn't have to be some, I don't know, all consuming thing for my ego or all consuming thing for, you know, what, who I am and what my worth is or value or whatever. It's just that I had a project. I was excited about it. I tried to do a really good job on it. It took me five years and great. It went really well. And now I'm going to focus on the next project and hopefully I can find something I'll be excited about and do my best on it. And we'll see where that one ends up, but I'm not going to try to turn it into something more than that uh, because I've seen, I've seen it go both ways. Um, but it can, you know, for good or for ill, it can consume you too much. And, um, you know, I'm just trying to keep it in a balanced zone and not let it become more than it needs to be. I guess, um, you know, just rewinding back all the way, what got you started into, you know, writing about habits, your newsletter, um, like why, why this topic, but you know, back at that time, 2011, 2012, this wasn't really a hot topic. Like now, you know, this is the world that we live in. You know, we look at like Andrew Huberman, you look at Rich Roll, and there's a lot of conversation around um, how you have to live your life in the sense of like, what is the optimum way to work out uh, habits and all of that. But what got you started with this whole journey, even before the book and everything? So as I mentioned, early on in my entrepreneurial career, I was experimenting with different businesses and business ideas and stuff. Once I started jamesclear.com, so first article I wrote was November 12th, 2012. Um, and I was like, I'm going to try to write a new article every Monday and Thursday. And I ended up doing that for three years. And that was kind of the habit that like launched my career. So that's another interesting thing about writing this book is that I kind of, and I think this made the book better. I had to practice the principles in order to complete the project. So, you know, obviously I had writing habits, but I also had other habits for growing my business. I have health and fitness habits in the gym. Like there are all kinds of different habits that I had to build in my personal life. And I think because I was forced to practice the ideas and not just think about them, it made the content better. Mm -hmm. it's enough. It's hard enough to come up with a good opinion you know, to have a well-informed opinion on something, but ultimately anybody can have an opinion. Um, it's much harder to execute on it. And 
I struggle with all the same things everybody else struggles with. You know, it's like, do you procrastinate on habits? Sure. All the time. You know, like, have you focused too much on the goal and not enough on the process? Yes, absolutely. And, um, in a way, everything I write is just a reminder to myself to return to the fundamentals or to focus, to emphasize a different part of it that maybe isn't natural and to focus on that a little bit more. So mostly I'm like writing for me and my struggles. And it just happens to be that those are like fairly universal struggles that a lot of us have. Um, but the same way that I tested different websites to kind of start my business, as I started writing every Monday and Thursday, I tested different topics too. So Early on, I wrote about like how to have better squat form in the gym. Uh, I had done articles that I wrote about like healthcare. And then I also wrote about habits and creativity and productivity and a lot of the topics that I write about today. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I just sort of like started to follow my nose a little bit. And it was like, whenever I write about habits or strategy or decision-making or productivity, those topics, it seems like people resonated more. You know, there was, there's this big circle of topics that I was interested in. And then the overlap of the Venn diagram was like, these are the things that other people are also interested in hearing from me on. Um, and the rest of the stuff was like, well, maybe just keep that to yourself. Um, and so as I started to discover that through experimenting with different topics, it was like, okay, I should just like, I'll keep writing about habits. That's something I'm interested in and they want to hear more about. And that momentum cycle, that kind of feedback loop just fed itself where I'd write an article on it and I'd send it out. And then I get positive feedback in my email inbox a couple hours later. And that would give me enough energy to be like, okay, people are enjoying this. Let me try to do it again next week. Okay. And so then, you know, you do that for a year or two and it turns out you got a hundred articles on habits and you're in a position to write a book on it. Uh, you know, when you must have had thousands or hundreds of thousands of people reach out to you about the impact that your book had or made questions and thoughts. And, you know, when, you know, I think a lot of us can assume some of the more common ones, like getting fit, better diet, uh, you know, better sleep, uh, you know, maybe some professional habits like writing a book, et cetera. Uh, I am curious about what are more interesting, maybe personal, family, more human habits that you know, maybe you didn't expect uh, people to pick up or you get asked about. So you're right. Probably the biggest category is health and fitness stuff. That's like the I don't know, kind of canonical example of building a good habit or breaking a bad one. Um, and then there's lots of productivity stuff for the workplace. Uh, on the personal side, I, habits of affection, I guess you could call it like getting in the habit of giving your spouse a kiss the first thing when you wake up in the morning or the last thing you do before you go to sleep. Um, it's a really small thing. It's, it's a good example of a small habit, but just the, I think the collective impact of that can be useful. Or uh, this is one that my family practices, which is um, when we sit down to dinner each night, we say one thing we're grateful for that happened that day. And the interesting thing about that habit, you know, it's so small, it doesn't take long at all to do it. But it's almost never stuff that takes like money or requires, um, I don't know, it's it's never like things that um, that that take very much stuff that like anybody could do in any circumstance. You know, like I'm grateful for a hug that my daughter gave me or I'm grateful that we went on a walk outside today or, you know, it's always stuff like that. And I think the collective impact of habits like that is also that you realize that there's always something to appreciate, even on the bad days. And it feels small on any given day. It doesn't seem to count for very much, but it kind of helps shape your mindset in the long run. So I think things like that are interesting. So those are some personal ones. The other category of habits that I find interesting that I don't think is discussed enough is like, I guess we would call them like meta habits almost, or they're, they're habits that are upstream from other habits. So for example, the habit of reflection review is a good one. 
So I have a weekly cycle. So I do a, a weekly review every Friday and that's like pretty basic business stuff, like revenue expenses, number of new email subscribers, just kind of like, you know, trying to get a bead on where things are at in the business. And most days there isn't really anything to report on that. You know, it's like, it looks mostly the same each week, but every now and then a couple times a year, there'll be some weeks where like, ah, something's up here. And it just throws a little bit of a flag up and you're like, something needs to be addressed. So I think having that habit of uh, review allows me to identify problems earlier and it's upstream from a lot of other actions and behaviors. I also have one that's um, that's uh, at the end of the year. So I do like an annual review and that's more broad. That's not just business stuff. It's personal and number of workouts and new places visited and all that kind of stuff. Um, another interesting way to think about habits that are like upstream uh-huh. is are there things that you can do that set the menu, so to speak, for what you're going to choose over the next hour. So my classic example here, I I can't, I don't do this every day. Maybe I do it 70% or 80% of days, which is I try to leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. Mm -hmm. And that kind of sets the menu on what I choose to do in the morning. You know, if I, if I can leave my phone in another room, then it's only like 30 seconds away. I have a home office, but I never go get it. And I'm like, man, that's so interesting because it was right next to me. I check it like every three minutes, you know? Mm -hmm. And so just by shaping that a little bit, it's like having the phone in the room or not is upstream from more productive behavior. And uh, so I think trying to think about your habits in that way Mm -hmm. can be a a useful frame that maybe people don't use as frequently. Uh, This is actually very interesting because there was a thread in the conversation you're having with Ryan Holiday, which I want to pull on, which is, you know, we live in a world of abundance, right? Like I can pull out this, you know, this device and I have access to more information than anybody who came before me in humanity. And so much of like what people want is driven by mimetic desire, right? Like, for example, I see this really for personal Instagram. I want those abs. I see this like person among peers that is making more money. I want that. How do you think about uh, a, you know, I want to build a habit to be, do this, accomplish this versus, Hey, maybe you should be happy and satisfied. And you, like you said, grateful with where you are. And maybe the person 10 years ago would be really happy with what you've gone so far. Like how do you maybe reconcile or are these two in opposition at all? Yeah, it's a really tricky question. You know, on the one hand, it's tricky because, um, the bar is always changing. Like I speaking for myself, I have different things that I'm optimizing for now than I was 10 years ago. So the things that I wanted, they shift over time. And so in that sense, it's always going to be impossible to be there, there and to be totally done and content because what you'll want in 10 years is going to be different than what you want now. Sometimes that means that you've like upgraded and it's more luxurious and more materialistic or whatever. But other times it just means that you're in a different season of life. You know, like I, 10 years ago, I didn't have a family and didn't have kids. So I wasn't optimizing for time with them the way that I am now. Uh, And that's not materialistic. That's just life changing and entering a new season. So um, yeah, so part of it is shifting. The kind of core thing that I think you're asking here is in the the way that I would phrase it is, do you have to be dissatisfied to be driven? Mm -hmm. Which is an interesting thing. You know, it's like, where does ambition come from? Is it a the gap between what you have and what you want or what you have and what you envision and is that gap necessarily there for ambition to exist at all does there have to be some desire to get to a place that you are not at right now for you to feel the urge to move at all and 
at some level, I think it probably does. But I also think we can frame it in maybe a more advantageous way or at least think about it in an advantageous way. So if you take like an acorn or a seed, for example, and you plant it into the ground and it grows up to sprout out of the ground and then to be a sapling and eventually to be this enormous oak tree. At no point do you like you don't look at the acorn and criticize it for not being an oak tree yet. You know, you don't look at the sapling and be like, what a loser. You haven't achieved anything yet. Um, you know, it's like, it's exactly what it's supposed to be at every stage along the way. It's perfect as an acorn. It's perfect as a sapling. It's perfect as a great Oak. And yet it never stops growing because that's just what an acorn does. You know, that's what an Oak tree does is it continues to grow. And I try to look at myself in that way too, where it's like, there's no reason to be dissatisfied with your current state. You can be an acorn or a sprout or a sapling or an Oak tree and you can be perfect at each stage along the way. But I'm going to continue to grow because that's just what I do. That's like part of who I am and part of what I'm interested in. And so um, maybe that connects in some way to the identity piece as well that we talked about. But if, if you identify as someone who is a lifelong learner or who enjoys the process of growth, then I think you can continue to be ambitious and to find ways to improve mm -hmm. without necessarily like hating yourself along the way or feeling guilty about not being there yet or something like that. So I think that's the, that kind of part of it. The other thing that you mentioned though, which I think connects to habits in an important way is this idea of mimetic desire and kind of imitating the people around you or the habits of those around you. And first of all, I think that's a very natural thing to do. You know, like I'm someone who I would consider myself to be very results oriented. And the natural thing that you do is you look at people who have the results that you want to have. And then you start asking, like, how do they get those? And what can I do? And how can I, you know, maybe I should have the habits that they have and that'll get me there. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a totally normal process to go through. And it also is pretty logical, you know, like even if you scale it down to like a survivalist or a very basic level, you look at somebody who has, you know, food or our ancestors did 100,000 years ago. And you're like, oh, they're eating berries. What did they do? Oh, they foraged from the berry bush. So I'm going to go forage from the berry bush, too. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you're imitating them, but you're doing it because it makes sense, you know? So in most areas of life, I think that kind of thing applies. But the modern world is very complex and very um, complicated. And there's like almost infinite paths available. And so I think it's really easy to just kind of settle into these grooves and kind of fall into these ruts of what other people are doing and then be like, oh, I should imitate that too. Mm -hmm. But you don't realize the wealth of other options that are available, the just almost infinite number of paths that you could take. And in most areas of life, there might not be a thousand ways to do something, but there's almost always more than one way. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the time when people select their habits, they kind of are implicitly imitating the people around them. And it's the habits that they feel like they should have because society applauds it or their parents want them to have, or their peers are encouraging them to do. But one of the most important things is to choose the habits that you actually want to have. You know, like one of my core habits is working out and I like lifting weights, but not everybody wants to train like a bodybuilder, you know, and that's fine. Like you can kayak or rock climb or go for runs or cycle, or there's like almost an infinite list of ways to live an active lifestyle. Yeah. And you should choose the version of that habit that is most enticing and exciting and appealing to you. And that should be the case for all the habits that you select. You should choose the version that is most appealing to you. 
And that's kind of, you know, it's the second law of behavior change in atomic habits, which is make it attractive. And so select the version of the habit that best fits your interests and desires. And if you do that, then you're in a much better position. Sometimes it might mean that you're still imitating what the successful people in your industry are doing, mm -hmm. but not necessarily, you know, other times it might be something that's just a better fit for you. So I don't necessarily think there's anything on the surface that's wrong with imitation, uh, but it can definitely lead you astray um, if you, you just kind of blindly fall into it. Oh, that's great. Uh, so good. Um, you know, this is, it's December now. It's, uh, you know, time to think about resolutions for next year. And uh, so this question is a little bit personal, um, but I've been thinking a lot about this. And, you know, since ever since I read your book, this is something that's just stuck to me as a part of like, what do you pick as habits as a part of your core identity? Um, and, you know, I wanted to go ask both of you and I'll start to, I'll, I'll chip, chip right. in too on what are your top three habits that you've picked up that you're really proud of and it can be something temporary that you do right now this year whatever that can be and you know for me um the top three for me you know i've always i'm one of those people james who you said if you're a runner you don't really think of running as like a different thing i've always mm -hmm. seen myself as a runner but it's been you know we have two small kids under the age of four and so it's been a little tough um and so i kind of pride myself on that identity of like always getting uh, having an active lifestyle so i try to do I follow Huberman's podcast. And one of the things he said was like, mm -hmm. uh, he wears a weighted vest when he goes on these long walks, if he can't get a run in. And I was like, oh, that's, that's great. So um, just having some sort of an active lifestyle and doing something active every day, is something I've picked up. And uh, it's just something I used to feel really bad about it because I'm like, oh, I'm not getting a long run in that sucks. But now, you know, I've just found a way to like, make it a part of my identity to just be active every day in whatever form, like you mentioned, that was one. Two, um, uh, we have two kids, two small kids, and we're just starting to see them interact with each other. And I've realized that it gives me incredible happiness uh, to see them both just play with each other, talk to each other in the morning. And it's just like goofy. You know, they just like run around, crawl yeah. around uh, once 11 months old. And uh, I just make it a point to just do that every morning to just get them both together in the same room and just like interact with each other because it just sets me up for the with the right mood the rest of the day. And that's just been really great. And three, I think this show that we do together, mm -hmm. we've always wanted a project that Sriram and I work on together. And this just feels like a fairly, I mean, it, we put in a bunch of hours into it, but it's still pretty easy and it's removed from our day jobs that it just makes it something for us to have fun with and stick yep. around and just do. And we've been doing this for two years, almost to the day now. Uh, every week and it's something that you know I feel really good about it being a part of the core identity so that's mine uh, James what are your three top habits that you feel really good about yeah it's a good question I have all kinds that I like I mentioned like that uh, saying what you're grateful for at dinner and you know so there's all sorts of little things like that that I like but I think if the first question by the way whatever this answer ends up being for each individual person who's listening the first question is like what am I optimizing for mm -hmm. you know so sometimes you're optimizing for money. Sometimes you're optimizing for time. Sometimes you're optimizing for, I don't know, like relationships, all kinds of things. So you just got to decide what it is for you. And then the habits can kind of fall in line with that. So I, I think the first question is, what am I optimizing for? Maybe the second question is, can my current habits carry me to my desired future? So mm -hmm. once I know what I'm optimizing for, am I on a path? Am I on a trajectory to get there? Um, and if not, then something needs to change. But uh, for myself, I, you know, I would probably say 
my most important habit, just talking personally here, individually, is working out. I don't, I've said this before, but I don't think that I would be an entrepreneur if I didn't exercise regularly. I just, uh, entrepreneurship can be a roller coaster ride and they're, the highs are high and the lows are low. And I just need something that rebalances me. And there are a lot of days when I felt like this day was a total waste work-wise. I didn't get anything done, but at least I got a good workout in. Um, and so at least I can go to sleep and feel decent that night. Mm-hmm. Um, so exercise, uh, writing obviously is the one habit that's like changed my career. So, you know, in my particular case as an author, that's like very straightforward and obvious, but you know, I would say that that's the one thing that has like shaped my outcomes the most. Um, but upstream from that is reading and the habit of reading or the habit of, I I'm very, um, there's this quote about Emerson where it said like, he read the way that a hawk like flies over a field searching for prey. And I feel like that's kind of how I read books. I don't really read them for like leisure. I'm reading them to like extract prey or to like find ideas. (laughs) So I, I often don't finish books or I often like, you know, dive into articles or blogs or PDFs or podcasts or what it doesn't really matter where it's from, but having a habit of learning something every day or of trying to consume something valuable each day that has been an enormous benefit to me. And it's also, it's also something I mentioned, pick habits that you enjoy. I like that part of the process. I just, I like learning new things. And so it's fun for me to do that. Mm. And I get a little bit of a rush whenever I learn something and then I'm able to connect the dots to something I previously have read or learned. And I feel like, oh, now I have something to write about. Now I can like be the bridge and talk about how these two things connect. So um, yeah, I would say that those are probably the three most important right. ones in my, my life. Not really a surprise, but those three, uh, take precedence. That's great. Sharon, uh, what's yours? Oh gosh. Uh, I'm going to pay a little comparison to both of yours. I, I think a couple of things I started doing recently. One is, uh, looking at sunlight first thing you wake up in the morning. It mm. really, you know, does wake you up and help me my sleep and it, just my normal day to day energy levels tremendously. The second one is something I've been doing for a while and I can't remember who, where I read this from, but I have a little spreadsheet where I have a few simple columns, which is like sleep, diet, exercise, family time, reading time. And I I kind of have a score from like zero to one. And I don't have to fill it in every day, but I try and fill it in enough days. And over time, the idea is to not do some complex mathematical analysis. Like over time, like you you can kind of see, okay, if you're having some sort of good days and bad days, and it just really gives you uh, an excuse to kind of reflect on your week, month, year. And I've been doing it for a couple of years now. And I can sort of see, oh, I was kind of unhappy then, but I can also see like my diet was way off or my sleep was way off. and, Mm. um, And you can start seeing these patterns and like anything is just like a tool to be like, oh, wait, I should probably, fix that because i can spot these patterns now okay i know we have a few minutes left and wait you... the third one. Oh, the third one. Oh my god okay <laughs> uh, i i will think of one later i think I, i've done with two right like you know i'm, I'm giving myself marks for two we'll okay. go with third one later okay. uh so we have a few minutes left i want to ask you um you've written a lot about weightlifting and working out which i highly recommend people go read but in a couple of minutes we have if you know people who want to start off 2023 uh getting fit etc what would be the two three practical things that you would urge them to do? Well, so again, those first questions, you know, who is the type of person I want to become? Uh, And then like what habits reinforce that identity? So do you want to become a runner or a weightlifter or do yoga or whatever it is, but kind of figuring out what that is for you or similar phrase, you know, what am I optimizing for that kind of, so let's start there. Um, And then I like to say, there's kind of this implicit assumption when people build new habits and we don't necessarily say it specifically, but especially for ambitious people, you start to think about what you want to achieve. And then the natural sort of feeling or question in the back of your mind is like, what could I do on my best day? Like, how can I achieve peak performance? 
And instead, I think it's more useful in the beginning to ask yourself, what can I stick to even on the bad days? Because if you can stick to it, even when the circumstances aren't ideal, now you have a baseline. Now you've maintained the habit. And once you maintain the habit, you have a lot of places you can go. There are all sorts of things you can optimize and improve. So I think you need to standardize before you optimize. Start by figuring out a way that you can master the art of showing up each day. And then there's all sorts of ways that you can improve it or scale it up or increase the scope or whatever. Another phrase that I like to keep in mind is reduce the scope, but stick to the schedule. So it's very easy to fall into this story of, oh man, you know, like I love getting my workout in, takes me about 45 minutes. And then you wake up on Tuesday and Tuesday gets out of control and you're like, oh, I don't have time now. I only have 15 minutes. Like why bother? I'm not gonna be able to do the whole thing. But if you stick to that philosophy of reduce the scope, but stick to the schedule, now it's like, okay, what can I do in 15 minutes so that I make sure I get a workout in today? And I think that's a much better place to be in the long run. Even if you're not doing as much as you had hoped, you're maintaining the habit and you're reinforcing the identity. And you can go to bed that night and look at yourself in the mirror and be like, you know what? Circumstances weren't ideal. Situation wasn't be- uh, uh, wasn't optimal, but I still figured out a way to be the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. Mm-hmm. And that counts for a lot in the long run. So I think focus more this year on identity and mastering the art of showing up and reinforcing that behavior and maybe a little less on worrying about the results or how quickly they come or, um, you know, what goal you want to achieve. And if you can commit to the process early on and start to reshape or uh, reinforce that identity, the results will come soon enough. I love it. Great. James, amazing as usual, uh, you know, well, whenever you write another book or project, you should come back on and uh, it's going to be amazing. But this is a blast. Thank you so, so much. This is amazing. Yeah, thank you both. It was a pleasure to talk and uh, happy to come back anytime. So thanks again. Awesome. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much, James.